All right, well, if you've been with us or if you've been watching online, you know that this is uh, the last and final week of our What Matters Most series. I've been in for the last three. This is week four uh, of this preaching series. We've been talking about things that matter the most and things that sometimes we don't talk about very often. Uh, We started this week, uh, we started this series in the first week talking about heaven and hell, the realities of heaven and hell. And I know it sounds weird to kind of say that from a church standpoint. We don't talk about that very often. We talk about how to live our life for Christ how to surrender, how to do uh, you know, proper relationships, how to have good marriages, how to parent well, how to manage our money, how to do all those things. But we don't hardly ever stop and just talk about where we're going to go when we die. And I think that matters, right? And it, it kind of matters pretty paramountly in our life. And so we talked about the realities of heaven and hell. Then the, when we started these uh, next three big words, I told you guys, if you're a guest here, I'm sorry, I told our church that uh, they're $5 words, and they are, and they're big church words, and sometimes we don't always know what they mean. Uh, and I told them that, you know, there's a part of me that wanted to kind of bring that down to like, you know, the point and the process and the payoff of salvation. But uh, because I believe in you and I believe that you're smart individuals, you can handle these big $5 words because that's what they're called. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, the moment that we are saved, the point of that we are saved, that we were saved, right? That's how we talk about it. We were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved in. Justification is that very first point. Instantly in the life of a believer, when you commit your heart and your life to Jesus, you are instantly justified in the eyes of Christ. Then last week we looked at the process, kind of the lifelong surrender process of sanctification. And this, I told you, this is what we talk about all the time. How we live our lives with Christ first. How we live our whole motto for 2022 here at Emmanuel is first. Where we're going to seek first God's kingdom. That's a process of sanctification. And then this week we're wrapping it up with the thought of glorification. Really, if, it's, if we were honest with each other, it's probably something that we think about is pretty far off. Like it's one of those things that we think about glorification, what happens when we die and all that kind of stuff. Well, we'll deal with that later. As the older you get, the more kind of important that thought becomes, the more I have to help TJ off off the stage or I have to have my own boys help me up off the floor, the more I start thinking about, okay, you know, there's only a little bit of time left here and I've got to figure out what the end of all this looks like. And that really, uh, as much as it seems like it's far away, should be of a lot of urgency in our life. We should live our life with around the thought of what is really going to ha- happen at the end. Now, let me just say this from the jump. The only person who knows what it's like to live in both heaven and on earth is Jesus, right? Can we all just agree with that? I don't care what book you've read or what podcast you've listened to. Uh, I don't care about what your crazy Uncle Earl told you about a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I, I told you, church, one time that I was talking to a guy about Jesus and about church and all that kind of stuff, and he said, man, I know I was talking to an angel because the face of that angel transformed into a face of a baby. And I knew I was talking, and I was like, Okay, you know, I just let him have his moment. I don't care what kind I'm not trying to take away from any experience that you guys have because we've all heard of these near-death experiences, but that's exactly what they are. They're near-death experiences. No one has ever left heaven and gone into or left earth and gone into the glory of heaven and in the presence of God himself and went, nah, I think I'll go back. 
right? Nobody except Jesus has ever done that. So when we read scripture, we take Jesus at his word. Whenever he says and talks about things, about what it's going to be like after death, then we have to trust him because he's the only one who's experienced that. Because we believe that God is the author of Scripture, we trust what Scripture says about life after death. And so when it all boils down to it, we know and we quote verses like this on the screen, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as it is destined to die once after that, to face the judgment. Like we know that there's something after that. But most of the time we just say, uh, I'll deal with that later. Now, depending on your background, you may have heard a few different thoughts about what happens when you die. And so I just want to set some ground, uh, kind of some foundational things that, that we can all kind of understand where I'm coming from on this. And you may have a different belief on this. And, and if you do, then, man, I would love to talk to you about why you believe the way that you believe. I'd love to talk to you about how you were taught what you believe. Here's what we believe as a church and what I believe as your pastor. We believe that once a believer, once a Christian, once a Christ follower has passed away, they are immediately in the presence of Jesus. Okay? There is no such thing, and I don't believe, in something that's called soul sleep. Soul sleep is where, um, this is a Seventh-day Advent theology. Uh, they believe that once you pass away, your soul just sleeps. You're not, your soul's not dead. It's just sleeping, waiting the resurrection. Catholic theology teaches that you go to a place called purgatory, right? Some of y'all have heard that. Only the really, really good ones go straight into heaven. The really, really bad ones go straight into hell. And everybody else just kind of goes to this holding tank. And purgatory is a place to me, uh, that's meant to make you more and more holy, really holy enough to enter into heaven. That's all out of an intertestamental book that's not in your Bible called Second Maccabees. That's where they get this thought. We don't hold on to that. We also don't hold on to something that's called, and this is another, I'm sorry, big word, uh, pre-resurrection cessation of existence. That's a mouthful. Just means that you, once you die, you just die, and you're dead, and you're just dead, waiting for the resurrection, right? That you're not asleep, like slow sleep is different. Sleep is that your soul is kind of still there, but it's just sleeping. This one is just that you're just dead, dead. And that you're just waiting, I guess. And we also don't, and I'm just going to throw that in, we don't believe in a cessation of existence either, that once you die, you, that's the end of the story. We don't believe in that. We believe that as soon as uh, you pass away, you are in the presence of Christ, and at some point, Jesus is going to return, and he's going to resurrect us and call us home. Jesus teaches this theology himself while on the cross. When he, remember, when he's on the cross, he looks at the thief, and he says, today... You will be with me in paradise, right? Now, the question is, is paradise heaven, right? The matter of fact, the Bible teaches an immediate presence in either paradise or Hades. And so, the question has to be asked, is paradise heaven? And I would answer that yes and no. <laughs> That's the best pastoral answer I can give you. Yes, because... Because the Bible says that heaven is where God resides. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And so if Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, then that means that's where Jesus is going. And so I'd say, yes, that's heaven. 
know in the same fact that if you read Scripture, that is not what we think of heaven as. Heaven, if you read Revelation, says in the very end there'll be a new Jerusalem and a new earth and a new heaven. And that's where we're going to stay forever in the presence of God. And so is it? Yes. Is it? No. Okay, so it's kind of yes and no. Where you are going to be is going to be in the presence of God, and that's really all that matters. And if God's there, it's called heaven, and so that's what I go back to. Okay, So when we think about all of that, we also know that Scripture says nobody knows when this is going to happen. Nobody knows when Jesus is going to come back, when the resurrection is going to take place. As a matter of fact, it says it's going to come like a thief in the night. So if we know it's going to happen, but we just don't know when, then shouldn't we be ready? Shouldn't we be living our lives with the urgency of understanding that like, hey, this is something that's really most important. And we should have some kind of thought and some kind of understanding and some kind of life trajectory living as though it's important. Now, I say this phrase, and I, if you were here over the last few weeks, you know this. If you went through knowing faith, how many times have I said that in the last four weeks? At least once a week. If you went through knowing faith, which was our, uh, our six-week course, doctrines course, uh, on Sunday nights. We did this in the fall and again in the spring. We're going to do it again in the fall and the spring of this year as well. Um, you, we talked about this. We talked about the doctrine of uh, eschatology and the end times theology and all that kind of stuff. We talked about what happens after you die. And I threw out even more $5 words to you through that, right? We talked about uh, tribulation and millennialism and dispensationalism and all those kind of things. What happens? When's the rapture going to happen? Where does that play out in Scripture? We talked about, all, we're not going to talk about all that this morning because I just don't have time. I gave one Sunday morning to the thought of glorification. And so as we work our way through this, here's my main point, and here's the most important thing I want you to hear, and it should be on the screen. Your salvation is not complete until your resurrected body meets up with your soul in heaven. This is the process of glorification. When we talk about salvation as a whole, and we looked at it in the three parts that the Bible describes as justification, sanctification, and glorification. Glorification is the final, it's the final stamp of your life. It's the final act of salvation where God saves you from death, an eternal death, and your glorified, your resurrected body meets up with your soul in heaven. Think of it like this. God, in his creative majesty, loved our bodies so much that he made them to be incorruptible. But when sin entered, I remember when Adam and Eve did what they did, sin entered and the penalty of sin was death. Before that moment, Adam and Eve were created to live eternally. But because sin entered, death entered with it. But our bodies from that point forward would deteriorate. They would waste away. They would eventually die. But when Jesus came and he lived and he died and he was buried and he rose again, he became living proof that a resurrection would happen, right? And, and that, remember when our souls are immediately in heaven with Jesus, when, when God comes the second time and he defeats death, he reverses the curse of sin and death, then our resurrected bodies 
We'll meet up with our souls in heaven, and we will live eternally there with him. As a matter of fact, Paul says, and he's talking about being in heaven without our bodies, he compares it to being naked, right? We're, we're, not, we're not fully together. I've got it on the screen, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Now we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will no longer be found naked. For while we were in this tent, we groaned and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now God, who made this for us, its very purpose, has given us this spirit as deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He's not talking about houses and buildings and tents. He's talking about our bodies. He says, listen, when we're there and our bodies aren't with us, it's like we're waiting for something. We're waiting for the, for the glorification, salvation moment in our life. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about the same subject, saying that the perishable will be clothed itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. This is all because we believe a resurrection is going to happen. And the question we'll have to keep coming back to is how. How's it all going to play out? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bible, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a really incredible passage of Scripture. If you go back up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that it is God's will for you to be sanctified, right? We talked about that last week. I could have preached that verse, but I didn't. Uh, and so we're going to save this, this for this week, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to start out in verse 13. It says this, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. This is why I love this passage of Scripture, because Paul points us to the one thing that really is, is what glorification is all about, and it's about hope, right? We have hope in the resurrection. We have hope in life after death. We have hope that extends beyond the here and now in this life. How sad would it be if there was nothing after this, right? Paul even says in another letter, he says, listen, if there is no resurrection, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He says, if there is no resurrection, then we should be pitied among all men because everything that we hold, hold, hold so close to is the hope of the resurrection. Every person on this planet longs for something more than just here and now, as a matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says God, he also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they can't fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This eternity in our hearts is this longing, this deep longing for something more than just this. Different world religions do this in different ways. Hindus believe in reincarnation, right? You're just going to be reincarnated back into something. Eventually, if you're lucky enough, you'll be reincarnated into a cow because that is their sacred animal, which makes no sense to me at all, uh, but it tastes really good, okay? Uh, so that's what they believe. Muslims believe that you're going to get your 72 versions, right? Um, Mormons believe that you will eventually, uh, if you die, you will eventually become a god, be assigned your own planet that you get to populate and you will be worshipped as a god. Um, Buddhists believe that you'll be reincarnated until you actually re reach nirvana, which is this elevated uh, spiritual state. There's always something after life. Because 
Everybody longs for eternity. What we do, I said this a few weeks ago, is that we seek out things and people and experiences to make us feel like heaven here, knowing that we can never feel that eternity in our hearts. Knowing that the only thing that fills that eternity is the hope that we have in Jesus. No job is going to do that for you. No relationship is going to do that for you. No drug is going to do that for you. No truck is going to do that for you. But we seek these things out thinking that they'll somehow fill that longing in our heart. And that we can feel like heaven here instead of waiting for heaven there. The only thing that fills that void is the hope that Jesus is who he says he was, that what he said is true, that we can trust in his promise, we can hope in what's waiting for us. And hear me, when I say this word hope, like in our context, we throw it around like something that could or could not happen, right? Well, I hope we win the ball game. I hope I don't get stuck in traffic. I hope my in-laws don't drive me nuts this weekend. Like it may or it may not happen. I just, I don't know, I'm hoping for the best. But the word that's used in Scripture is completely different than that. I've got it on the screen, and this is, this is your uh, Greek lesson for the day. The first Thessalonians word here is elpis. Elpis is the Greek word here, and it means a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Right? Joyful, confident expectation. We don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope. Like, we've got this hope. We're, we're excited about it. We've got this confidence in it. As a matter of fact, Romans 5, 5 says that hope does not disappoint because we know it's going to happen. We don't want us to, to grieve like people who don't understand what's after this world. We have this understanding. We have this joyful, confident expectation of salvation. Look what Paul says next in Thessalonians chapter 4. He gives us the why. And, and by telling us what we believe. This is Christianity 101, verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring Jesus with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That is, that's the most basic, fundamental teaching of the resurrection that is in Scripture. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God's going to bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The resurrection is going to happen. Then he tells us the process, verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, there's a couple of really incredible things to these two verses I want us to see. I'm just going to break them down into these three quick points, and they're exactly what the Scripture says. According to the Lord's own word. When you read this, I want you to, we, we think this is like maybe something that Jesus taught. So if you go through the Gospels, if you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're looking for this dead in Christ is going to rise first, you're not going to find it. This is, this is not meant to be a phrase of, this is what Jesus said. It's not even meant to be a phrase, because some people say, well, well, maybe Jesus said this, and it's recorded in some other book that's not in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not what this phrase means. What this phrase means is that these words are straight from God. It's such a great phrase because it's one of the few indicators in Scripture of the author's understanding of divine inspiration. 
Okay, we believe that God is the author of Scripture, right? That God inspired the writers of Scripture of what to write down. And this is one of the very few places in Scripture where the authors give a nod to that process. We believe that all Scripture is divinely inspired, Old Testament and New Testament. The easy parts and the harder parts, the parts that we really like and the parts that hit a little clue too close to home, right? All of this is an all or nothing divine inspiration thought. And here, Paul is nodding to that. He's going, this is the, this is the words of God himself, according to the Lord's own words. I can't make this up. This isn't my opinion. This is straight from God Himself. It's a so important phrase in Scripture, and we just read it and just read right over it. But don't miss according to the Lord's own word. So he's saying, This is not, this is my, not my idea. This is from God. And he says this, number two, we who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, what, what we need to know is the backstory here. Church in Thessalonica, Paul started on one of his missionary journeys. I think it was the second or third uh, missionary journey uh, in Thessalonica. Paul started this church. He went and he kind of got the people together and started preaching Jesus. People understood the message and, and, uh, and, and believed. From when he left to when he writes this, other people had come in and began teaching the church uh, a doctrine that's untrue. Saying, listen, if, if you die before Jesus comes back, um, then you're not going to get to go to heaven. That it, he's only going to take the ones who are alive. And every commentary I read about these verses in Thessalonians says that, that Paul's trying to address this false teaching. He's going, listen, no, don't, don't get this twisted. We who are alive are not going to precede those who have already fallen asleep. Like, they're going to rise first, right? He's coming and saying, they, they, they were even taught that they would, those who are alive would, if they, even if the dead did rise, the ones who were alive would receive some kind of special blessing, right? That, that you're going to be more favored in heaven because you were still alive and you didn't die. And, and Paul's like, this doesn't make sense. This is not how Jesus taught us. He said, listen, the dead in Christ are going to rise First, So when Paul writes this, he's trying to do a couple of things. He's reinstating hope for those who have already died, right? Don't, don't lose faith that if you pass away, these guys who you've loved, they're still going to get to go. Number two, he's reassuring them of their, their own resurrection, right? Listen, if you die, don't, don't let this mess you up. But if you pass away before Jesus comes back, it's okay because you're going to get to go too. And he's kind of foreshadowing what he's going to tell the church in Corinth a few years later when he says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be Change. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are all going to experience, if you are a believer, you're going to experience this, this process. He didn't call it this, this glorification. Alive or asleep, you will be home with him. The third thing that I want to point out in this little passage of Scripture here is that the Lord himself will come down from heaven. This is a really great phrase. The Lord himself will come down from heaven. The second coming of Christ is going to be this global public event. There's a, there's a denomination that says that, that the, the kingdom of God has been ushered in in 1914 or something like that. Uh, they believe that we are currently living in this new kingdom of God that he's established way back when. Listen, when Jesus comes back, everybody's going to know it. We have scripture. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. 
And then all the peoples on earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is Jesus talking about himself. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascends to heaven, remember it says that two angels uh, kind of appeared where the disciples were, and they said, quote, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. He's going to kind of can't get much clearer than that. Jesus himself is going to come back and the Lord himself will come down. This is going to be a global event. If you read the book of Revelation chapter 19, I've got this on the screen. It says this, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on their white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine presses of fury, the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is when Jesus comes back. This is an incredible moment in Scripture, in this iron scepter coming out of his mouth. It's just his word. If you read the end book of Revelation, when this, all, everything's kind of climactically building to this final moment, and we who live in the age of movies and uh, you know, the cinematic universe and all this kind of stuff where we see all the good and evil, and we think like there for a moment like the, the bad guys are going to win for a little bit, and then the good guys are going to win for a little bit, and we think there's going to be this tension there. When Jesus comes back in Revelation, you know what he does? He says, it's over. And that's it. There's no like, there's no tension build up. There's no, it's very anticlimactic, right? You read this and Jesus comes along and he just says, hey, I win. And everybody goes, yeah, you win. And that's it. That's the end of the story. And when this moment happens, everybody's going to know it. This is not one of those things where we're sitting back going, was that really him? Are we sure? I mean, I saw the white horse. I saw the guy with the dripped, you know, blood dripped uh, robe. I saw all this stuff happen. Was it really? I don't know if that was really Jesus. Where everybody's going to know the Lord Himself will come down from heaven. If you hear nothing this morning, hear this He will return and He will call us home. That is the hope of glorification. Look what he says next in verse 17, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Paul doesn't leave out those who are still alive, who are still living, right? He says, listen, you're not going to get special treatment, but the dead in Christ will go, but we'll be caught up together, right? This is all going to happen together. We're in this together and this just has to be said because some of y'all Christians can't stand to be in the same room with each other you're going to hate heaven if you can't get along with each other here some of you can't 
can't figure out and you hold grudges and you're mad about things that happened a long time ago and you know what maybe you're justified maybe if everybody knew the whole circumstance everybody would feel the same way you feel now but when Jesus calls us home we're going together we're we're nobody's better than the other nobody's more loved than the other listen nobody's more right than the other I wonder Jesus talked a lot about how to love each other, how to get along with each other, and how the church, how the church should treat each other. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, does not boast, does not hold grudges. We use that as a marriage thing, but you know who he's talking about? He's talking about the church, how we should love each other. I had to throw that in because we're going together. Y'all better figure it out now. We can read all these verses. We can celebrate this hope that we have and sing songs like, I'll fly away. And when the roll is called up yonder, that's a country word that we don't ever use any other way. We can sit back in our assurance and say, look, look, I'm, I'm looking forward to heaven. But if we read these verses and we miss this one thought, then we've missed everything out of it. Twice in this passage of scripture we've read, Paul says the phrase, we who are still alive, who are left. He says it in verse 15, he says it in verse 17. Notice that Paul doesn't say those who are alive, who are left. He says we. Because he genuinely believed that Jesus was coming back. And he genuinely believed that it may even happen in his lifetime. We. We who are left. We who are still already here. We who get to see his return with our own eyes. We will be caught up with those who have already passed. Church, we've got to have a wake-up call. Because how dare we say... How dare we say that we believe in Jesus and we believe that he'll come back and he'll call us home and, and that nobody knows when, but not live with the urgency that it could happen within our own lifetimes. Listen, if you knew that some natural disaster was going to happen, something that was going to radically change the course of human history, something that was going to alter lives or even take lives, if you knew it was going to happen a week from today, wouldn't you do everything in your power to ensure the safety and the survival and the salvation of the people that you loved the most? How is this any different? We know that he's going to return. We don't know when it's going to happen. And, and when we sit around and we sit and think, oh, they'll figure it out. Oh, well, we hope that they'll understand. We have to live with an urgency of understanding that just like when we, uh, we discussed in week one, that once we die, our decision is made. There's no going back. We can't change our mind. The only way that we know to get to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. Then why are we living like that's not important? Why do we sit around and talk about everything other than the most important things? Psalms 90, 20 teaches us to, says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I love this verse. Because it reminds us that we've only got a short amount of time. Number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. I, we Staff, we meet once a week, try to meet at least once a week. 
and sit and talk through calendar things and event things and schedule things. I, TJ and I talk about the service and what I've got planned to preach on and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and we read books together. It's good for us to do that. Um, and so I'll find us a book and I'll give everybody a copy of it and we'll read it together. And we're reading, um, we're reading the new uh, Bob Goff book. I don't know if you read books. If you don't, you should read Bob Goff. He's pretty easy to read. Uh, if you read Bob, you just kind of fall in love with Bob. He's just a kind of an older guy who's just who's lived a lot of life. He's had a lot of different experiences. He writes about those. And, um, and he, just, he just genuinely loves people and points people to Jesus about every opportunity he can. Well, his book's about living undistracted, about how, how to live life and not be distracted by all the things that's going on and really focus on uh, the important things. And in one of those chapters, he said that, and I'm going to read the quote because I don't want to mess it up. He said, the average person lives about 27,375 days, fewer if you eat saltwater taffy and a few more if you eat broccoli. That's his words, okay? 27,375 days. When I read that, I was up early one morning reading through the chapters, probably because we were going to talk about them that morning in staff meeting and I hadn't finished them yet. So I was up reading them and I stopped. And I wrote down at the bottom of the page, because I write in all my books, I wrote down at the bottom of the page, and I did the math. I have lived just short of 16,000 days, which means I've got about 11,500 days left. And church, it messed me up. I was like, 11,500 days. Some of y'all are like, I'd take 11,000, right? I'm, I'm down to the 5,000. You know, we're not going to do the math in here this morning. But it messed me up. I was like, that's... That's, I've already lived half, like already more than half of my, my allotted like, number. I'm, I'm running out. Jess and I would go on walks and most evening we were walking and I was telling her about it. And I was like, Jess, like, I, I'm, I'm getting old. Like, I, can't, I don't like this. I've only got like 11,000 days left. She promptly told me to hush and, and to not worry about it. And you know, she kind of told me how dumb I was being. But, but the reality of it is like, I was like, this is a big deal. 11,500 days is not a lot. It's, it's kind of scary. And she's like, Matt, that's on the average of whatever, whatever age we did the math. And I was like, yeah, we, we, hopefully we're going to live a little longer than that. And now I want to see all those things happen. But when we, when we really sit and think about it, Scripture tells us to number them. So that we gain a heart of wisdom. So that we understand things on a deeper level. So that we live with an urgency of the things that matter most. We, we've got a limited time. Limited time to, to let as people, many people as we know and as we love really know what life is all about. Listen, the blessing of a devoted life to Jesus is a promised eternity to worship the one who saved you. Why would we not tell as many people? Why would we not want to share that blessing? How's all this going to happen? I don't know. But I have hope, a joyful, confident expectation of my eternal salvation. I have hope that it will. My responsibility is to share that hope with as many people as I can. Here's my last thought, and I'm done. It's a pretty easy one. It's really Paul's concluding thought toward this whole event. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. 
Therefore, and in light of all that we just read, and because we have hope, because Jesus will return, because the dead in Christ will rise, because those who are living will go together, because he wins at the end, encourage each other with these words. Remind them. Remember the promise of justification. Work out the process of sanctification and place your hope in our eventual glorification. Encourage each other with these words. This is what matters most. This is what's most important. And when we live our life with this understanding, we live our life with an urgency to bring as many people along with us as we can. I'm going to ask you to stand and uh, to bow your head. TJ's going to come and Miss Ruth's going to play. We're going to have a moment of invitation. Maybe, maybe for some of us, we've just been living life and not really caring what matters most. Maybe we've made other things more important. Maybe even this morning, you've realized that I don't know if I've got this hope. I don't know if I've got this promise that in the end, I'm going to get to be with him. Man, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to to walk you through that process. Maybe you're at a moment where you just, you know, kind of get things back in order. You need to kind of reprioritize some areas of your life. You just need to kind of surrender some things and say, okay, God, I've been out of the loop for too long. It's time to get back into what matters most. Maybe just before summer hits, we need to get focused because we know what our summers are like and they're all over the place and kids are home and schedules are crazy and vacations and maybe just for a minute we need to we just need to kind of center ourselves and ask God to to continue to keep what matters most at the front maybe you need to join the church or, or you want to talk to somebody about what it means to be baptized this is your opportunity to make whatever decision you need to make but don't ignore what God's pulling you toward in this moment if it's a change then change if it's a commitment then commit if it's surrender then surrender if you need somebody to pray with you I'd be here I'll be happy to do that handle what God's doing to you and with you in this moment let's pray together and then TJ is saying Father we love you and we thank you for today thank you for the hope that we hold on to and the promise of salvation God, I thank you that you're not done with us yet and that we all are in this process of becoming more and more like Christ. And so, Father, once we pass or once you come back, Father, we can't wait for our eternity in heaven with you. God, it's the promise that we cling to. It's what you yourself taught us. what Jesus gave an example of. And so, Father, help us to see that there's more to life than just the here and now. Maybe some of us here this morning need to reprioritize. Maybe we need to shuffle the deck a little bit when it comes to the things in our life. And so, Father, we just pray that you would be at the top. And if you're not, God, let's put it you there now. God, help us to commit to do that. Help us to surrender to what you have for us and help us to live our life and the reflection of the hope that we have. God, if there's someone here this morning that needs to talk or needs to figure out what this really means, if they need to join the church or whatever's going on, God, I just pray that this morning they would be obedient to what you have for them. Don't let us miss this opportunity to respond to what you've called us to this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys.
Uh, sing as you'll who come if you need to come.